1989, the Foreign Mission Board of the SBC, now the International Mission Board, asked my church in Fort Worth to begin praying for the Kazakhs in Kazakhstan and a particular people group. Uh, Korean Baptists soon after that began to send missionaries to reach them and a young lady came to Christ as a result of a missionary's witness and he focused on the return of Christ. And the moment she learned that Jesus was coming back, she went through her city and began to tell people he's coming back as if he's coming back in the next 10 minutes. And he could. She got the message better than many. And she gave her heart and life to Christ. And about seven years later, I got to be her pastor in North Carolina. What a wonderful thing. I got to pray for her in 1989, became her pastor in about 1995 or 96. Uh, your prayers and your giving can make a difference. And know how the world needs to hear the good news that we're declaring at Christmas. Well, if you believe that, turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. And I want to address uh, this uh, morning uh, Christmas with temptation. Christmas with temptation. One uh, great author wrote an um, uh, article uh, about a couple that his son later found out was really autobiographical uh, about he and his wife. And he said when uh, they were young and didn't have an awful lot of money, on New Year's Eve they went to purchase a Christmas tree at a Christmas tree lot. And of course the pickings are very slim Christmas Eve. And he uh, persuaded the owner of the lot to sell, he and his wife, two scrawny trees. Uh, in fact, one side uh, of each of the two trees uh, was, was about barren. And uh, the man sold both those trees for $3 apiece. And they took them home, and the uh, owner of the lot the next morning was walking uh, by their apartment, their basement apartment, on Christmas morning, and he looked through the window and saw the most beautiful tree he'd ever seen. And he, he just knocked on the door. He said, how in the world did you get this beautiful tree? You, brought, you bought two scrawny ones from me last night. And, and the man explained, what we did is that we took those two scrawny trees and we took the barren side of both of them and tied them together with wire, and they turned into a beautiful tree. And he was writing about this. He said, you know, that's what we did with two trees, and sometimes that's what happens with two people. Two people no one else wants. They fall in love, they marry, and they make something beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, this hallmark moment was brought to you <laughs> from Beach Haven Baptist Church. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of Christmas experiences turned out to be that way uh, with your family? Uh, wouldn't it be neat if you had a change in that relationship with the person you don't like and doesn't like you and you still can't figure out why after all these years? Most confusing people, most confusing relationships in the world can happen in families. Uh, so, some of you are single and you don't want to be and you don't want to be lonely. Maybe you're widowed or you're a widower. And Christmas is a joyful time, but high times can also lead to high expectations, which can lead to terrible disappointments and make us terribly, terribly vulnerable. Uh, in, in fact, with somebody in the area of romance, your Dr. Love is not ridden up on a riding lawnmower yet to say, hey, Miss Lady, and uh, your uh, uh, future bride hadn't shown up and, and uh, is nowhere in sight. Um, inside joke from last night, some of you got it, but I can't explain it. Uh, but anyway, uh, the truth is, is that uh, high times of the year, especially holidays and birthdays and celebrations, can lead to disappointment. And in that way, we become very, very vulnerable. There's probably more misery begun during the holidays than just about any other time of the year. 
So with the joy comes oftentimes some foolish behavior. Um, Your soul will not tolerate dissatisfaction. Your soul will demand and insist and pester you until you satisfy it, even if it's just temporarily. Reminds me when uh, Jonathan and Hannah Grace were real small. Uh, Hannah Grace was probably about two and Jonathan was about three or thereabouts. Uh, Hannah Grace was standing in a chair at the kitchen table and she was uh, facing the back of it and her mother was in front of her with her back turned and I was standing uh, there at the dining room the entrance into the kitchen and I watched this scene unfold. Sherry Michelle was at the sink and she was doing some work and and um, Hannah Grace wanted her attention and so she said mama mama and her mother was really concentrating mama 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 then she said, Sherry Michelle. <laughs> the child wanted some attention, and she got it. Do you know your soul will be the same way? Your soul will pester you. Your soul will demand and insist upon satisfaction until you give it some. And when that happens, you've got a couple of choices. In the text, to use the words of the text, you've got the way of Sodom, and Satan will always show up with the offering and the glamour and the glitz of Sodom. Or you've got the way of Melchizedek, who represents Jesus Christ, who offers a better way. Your soul will demand attention, especially in high times during the year when you've been disappointed and you've been made vulnerable. Well, Abraham has just had an enormous high time. Abraham's had an enormous victory in his life. His uh, nephew Lot has gone to Sodom in chapter 13, and um, Moses comments that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. He's not said that before. First time that phrase appears in the Bible. They are exceedingly wicked, and the cities back then were little kingdoms. Uh, they, They didn't have mayors, they had kings. So if you can imagine Athens having a king and Bogart having a king and Watkinsville having a king and, and if you can imagine Statham having a king, uh, if you can ma- imagine um, uh, uh, these little cities and all having kings, that, that's what you have. And, and, and five kings rose up against four kings and uh, Abraham joined uh, one particular side, but the other side kidnapped his nephew Lot and Abraham went after him and Abraham's not a king. He just has a household of about 300, um, 300 men, and he ends up winning a victory and recapturing Lot. He's got a high time. Something great has happened. And because of that, because of that, he comes back in celebration and victory, and we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 17, where after his great high time and high point victory, Abraham is met with two choices represented by the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. 
Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abraham rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who were with me. So what we have here is that we've got the king of Sodom and the king of Salem meeting Abram after his great victory. The king of Sodom represents everything sinister, satanic, and demonic. Uh, Sodom appears in the Bible. It's already been set up in Genesis 13 as being an exceedingly wicked city. And for the rest of the scripture, all the way to the book of Revelation, it represents all that is evil and wicked. Even when it's good, it is really, really bad. And then you've got the king of Salem. 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 And the geographic reference here is in the Hinnon Valley. Well, if you know a little bit about your biblical geography, uh, what city is near the Hinnon Valley? Well, Jerusalem is. And he is the king of Salem. The Jebusites were associated with that. If you take the first few letters of the Jebusites and add them to Salem, you've got the word Jerusalem. He is the king of the city there that predated Jerusalem. And uh, his name is Melchizedek. Now, the uh, author of Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 5 and 7 and 8 as a topic of maturity for the Hebrew readers in the book of Hebrews. And he compares Melchizedek to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a priest forever. He has no earthly origin with his father. He comes from heaven and uh, he is a priest and will be a priest forever. Well, that's the way Melchizedek appears in this text. There are some who actually think that what we have here with the king of Salem or Shalom, uh, the city that predated Jerusalem, and Jesus will be the king that rules over Jerusalem, is that we have here a, an appearance of Jesus Christ before Bethlehem to strengthen Abram. When Abram was faced with some vulnerability after a high time of victory, he was met with two choices, and every one of us happens to be. And every time you experience a high time that makes you vulnerable, every time you experience a disappointment, every time your soul is dissatisfied, God will meet you at that point in Jesus Christ with something superior. And those things appear in the text. And the first superior thing is this. With, with Christmas temptation, we, we have a supreme war. A supreme war. Did you know that the satanic kingdom believes that you are worth messing with? Did you know that the potential and possibility of your life is so powerful that uh, demons in the kingdom of hell believe you are worth frustrating, disappointing, messing with, and bothering? Do you realize that? You are a potential powerhouse of God like everyone else that's known Christ through the ages. You have a bullseye on your back. Now, just imagine if you were the devil. I understand you're not, but just imagine if you were the devil, 
What time of the year would you pick on God's people the most? What time of the year would you pick on God's people the most? Well, I think the Christmas season and the Easter season, time of great celebration in the Lord would be the, great, would be the most opportune time to pick on the people of God. I really do. I think that'd be the greatest time. And so they get disappointed and you tempt them to drink. You tempt them with uh, abusing prescription drugs. You tempt them with illegal drugs. You, you tempt them with um, foolish romances. Man, I think about this one fella, one to the Lord, a number of years ago when I was an interim pastor at a church in Texas. And uh, he came to Christ, gave himself, was on fire for Jesus. Now, he came out of a broken marriage and a broken life out of that. And he was terribly, terribly disappointed with how his wife had treated him. He was low down. He felt rejected. But he came to Jesus Christ out of that. And I'll never forget, in a few weeks, David had taken up with another girl. I mean, he hadn't finished. The, his wife, uh, the, the, the divorce was not final. None of that was settled at all. There was some hope the week before of some reconciliation. But all of a sudden, he changed his mind because he found another girl. And you know something? Except for the ankle bracelet uh, monitor on her ankle put there by Tarrant County uh, Sheriff's Department and the breathalyzer on her steering wheel, she was quite a catch. <laughs> and, and you couldn't talk sense into David at all. You couldn't. He was blinded to the foolishness of his decision. Folks, the truth is, is that when you've got a high time in Jesus Christ, whether it's the Christmas season or the Easter season or some personal celebration where you want to give glory to God, you become an enormous target. And that's what we've got here in verse number 17. It's right after his victory that the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram. That's precisely what happened. Right after his victory. Listen, you've got to understand, Sodom is always pursuing you. And you've got to anticipate that. You've got to be ready for that. You've got to prepare your mind for such a, um, for such a time. It, it was right after Jesus' baptism that he was in the wilderness. As, at his baptism, you recall, reading from Matthew 3, what the Father said to him, the most wonderful thing, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So publicly, the Father testified of his divine commissioning and approval of Jesus Christ, something he has never given publicly to any other world religious leaders. They all claim it happened in private. For Jesus, it happened in public, and it was right after that he was in the wilderness and the devil tempted him. It's right after these high times that the difficulty may come. And so 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so during high times, don't be so flush with victory. Don't be so flush with uh, celebration. Don't, don't be so flush with a sense of accomplishment that you forget to walk with God. Linger longer in his presence. I'll tell you this. Whenever I see a preacher that has fallen, when I see a Christian who, who backslides and drifts from God, I can tell you, long before they ever failed in public, they had already failed in private. Some kind of corruption, some kind of drifting, some kind of decline, some kind of downgrade in public that was um, not visible to other people's eyes, but then it showed up in public is what happened. That's the first thing. 
There's a supreme war you've got to be aware of, and you've got to prepare for it. But there's a second thing with Christmas temptation. We also have not only a supreme war, but a supreme way. I remember when I finished high school, I went about 2,800 miles east to East Texas, to East Texas Baptist University as a college freshman. I didn't realize what a big, bold move that was. And I went all by myself. I didn't know a single soul on the campus. And the first day there, I matched up with the group of students that showed up early. A couple of them were cheerleaders, and um, they began paying some attention to me. And I thought, wow, these sophomore and junior girls paying attention to me as a freshman guy? I thought, my goodness. Now, you may, looking at me today, you may find that very hard to believe. But uh, that's, uh, that, that, that's what happened. And the first day I was there, I was part, or at least listened to, I wasn't part of the discussion, but I listened to discussions among them about what they were going to do that evening and that week that violated the student code of conduct. We were a Baptist university, we had a student code of conduct, and there were some things you weren't to do there. And they were talking about how they were planning parties in which they were going off campus in which they were going to do that. And, and I resisted some, and I, my body language showed some discomfort, and I began to look for a way to escape and get away from some of that. And one of them accused me of, think, of, of, of thinking that I was better than them. No, it's because I'm not any better that I didn't want any part of it. Wasn't better at all. And I made a decision right then. The first couple of days I was on the campus to study for ministry, to go ahead and break this relationship with these upperclassmen who were showing me attention, but had planned to violate the student uh, code of conduct. You know what happened the very next day I made that decision? A best friend I've got till today met me in the line to get books. His name was Bill Stroud. And since that day, Bill has been a best friend. I've walked with him through trials and difficulties. He's walked with me, and more than anything else, he has modeled Jesus for me. And has loved me, was patient with me in my young days. I was only a Christian for about 15 months at that time. And he's walked with me every step of the way. Listen to me. God doesn't just remove things from your life. God replaces them with something better. And that's what we've got in the text. The king of Sodom comes out and offers Abraham all the spoils of victory. But the king of Salem, Melchizedek, shows up and gives him something better in a time of vulnerability. Hey, I'm not making this up. Look at verse 18. Then Melchizedek, uh, which means king of righteousness, he's king of Salem or Shalom, which would become Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, which means peace, uh, brought out bread and wine. It's hard to not imagine the Lord's Supper uh, there in the text, isn't it? And then he was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High. Now, how does Melchizedek, a Gentile, a Canaanite, know anything about God Most High? Oh, well, God's working independently of Abraham, unveiling himself. And so Melchizedek, in, in a way that we don't know, has come to trust and believe that the God of the Old Testament is to be his God, and he's even a priest to this God. He's not only a priest, but he's also a king. 
And he goes on to declare who this God is, which we already know from reading the first couple of chapters of Genesis. He's the possessor or the creator of heaven and earth. And he, he, he continues and says, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he gives glory to God. He knew it was not the prowess of Abraham or the strategizing of Abraham that brought him victory. He, he knows it was God. And so then Abram gives him a tithe of all that he's captured and uh, all that he has taken in this war and battle. Now in Hebrews 7, 7, it says the lesser is blessed by the greater. So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. I, I really suspect that what we have here is that we have a, an appearance of Jesus Christ before Bethlehem. Theologians call that the pre-incarnate, pre-fleshly days of the Son of God. Hey, in his time of need, when he's vulnerable, when he's having to say no to the rest of the world, ladies and gentlemen, it may not be about Bill Strath, but it's someone greater. Melchizedek shows up and unveils himself and the person of Christ to Abram. Listen, when you come to a time of temptation, when you come to a time of vulnerability, you need to know long before the temptation arrives, Jesus is already there with the superior way. And that's what he's offering unto you. And declaring Christ in Christ alone as the, as the supreme way is really what we're attempting to do in this whole season. We, we've got a church member who um, uh, recently had a family member who went through a very difficult time, had to have some surgery, was not expected to make it through. And through the years, this person had been very, very anxious, full of anxiety, full of sorrow, full of difficulty, and at times could be very difficult to get along with. And had proven that through the years. And the individual had grown up in a Christian home, but had not embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, like we're hoping that you'll do today. And instead of doing that, she admired Jesus and liked him okay enough, but would mix New Age spirituality and Native American spirituality into um, the faith of Christ. In fact, there's probably more Native American spirituality and crystals and rocks and uh, such uh, silliness uh, than there was ever Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that when people try to mix Jesus with other things of the world, there's less of Jesus and more of these strange ideas? That's about the way it always appears. And that's what she had done in her own life. But she got down and she was within a week of losing her life, of passing away. And her son witnessed to her and shared the gospel with her and said, you've got to choose Christ and Christ alone and reject these other views and these other faiths. You can't have a win-win here between crystals, Native American spirituality, and other ways, other religious faiths in Jesus Christ. Jesus will not be mixed with anyone or anything he refuses to. He and He alone demands the glory of being Savior and Lord. Will you receive Him? And she indicated that she would. Right there on her hospital bed in a moment of lucidity, she gave her heart and life to Jesus Christ and simultaneously rejected these other faiths and religious ideas. And that's what we're inviting you to do today. You need to know that if you come to Jesus Christ and give yourself to Him, He will not share you with anyone else. There is no room for any other God. There's no room for any other faith. 
Doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. Doesn't have to mean you have to be ugly and rude to others. In fact, quite the opposite. You'd be very compassionate and loving. But in your own heart, in your own life, there is no room for any other faith, any other God, any other Lord. Christ in Christ alone is declared supreme. Him and Him alone. Because He comes with a supreme way. But there's a third thing in this text as well. Not only a supreme war and supreme way, but with Christmas temptations comes supreme wonder. And we find that in verses 21 through 24. Now it says here, The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods yourself. Now that's quite preposterous because Abram had the right to all the goods anyway. The king of Sodom is appearing to be far more generous than what he is. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord. That's a serious oath. We we do it in courtrooms today. Uh, When uh, elected officials take the oath of office, or public servants do, they raise their hand. And that's what's happening here. I've raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, above whom there's no other. He's the most high. The possessor of heaven and earth. Now, the first readers of this are Israel, who've just come out of Egypt, and they are learning real quickly that Pharaoh does not own the earth. God Almighty does. That I will take, verse 23, I will take nothing, and and this is extreme here, not a thread or a shoestring, essentially, strap of a sandal. I won't even take that, and I won't take anything that's yours, because I'm afraid you're going to say that you made me rich which is probably what the king of Sodom is setting him up for. In other words, he wants to look good in front of the other kings of the other cities, is what he's wanting to do. And he's wanting to say, I have benefited Abram in this impressive way. I made Abram what he is today. In other words, the king of Sodom is wanting to take credit and glory for what has become of Abram. Abraham sniffs that out. He smells that out. And he says, I'm not taking a thing. And he's doing this publicly in front of the entourage of the king of Sodom, in front of his household and others. I'm not taking a thread. I'm not taking a shoestring from you. Because you're going to use that as an opportunity to take credit for what I have become. And you've got to understand, Abraham's implying, I am not what I am due to my own effort or my wisdom, or the collective wisdom of my household. I am what I am because of God Almighty, God Most High. God gets the glory for what has happened in my life. Now, I'll make an exception. You can give these young men reimbursement for their expenses. And that's what the rest of the text essentially says. But as for me, I'll take this tithe for Melchizedek, but personally, I want nothing I'm going to give all the glory to God. God and God alone are, is going to get the credit for who I have become. Hey, do people admire your family? Do people ever tell you you've done a good job with your children? We've had opportunities to hear that. I, I've got to tell you, God made my children. My, my, uh, my children have been exceptionally easy to raise, and she and I do not under any circumstance, take credit for that. That's the kind of spirit God put in them. That came from Him. We're not especially good parents. What about your work? Do do people give you glory and credit for that? And, And what about when you have the opportunity to respond to that? Do you give glory unto God and magnify His name? By the way, can I tell you, there really is never a perfect time to give glory to God in the world. 
it will always appear just a little awkward. And it will drop, it will drop and detonate like a small bomb in the midst of a mall. It will. That there's never a perfect time to exalt the name of Christ for what God has done in your heart and life and family and work, your person and your history. Never a perfect opportunity. So if you're looking for the perfect opportunity where it's natural and it fits, it ain't coming. You've got to just do it anyway and magnify his name. And what looks awkward and unnatural here makes a whole lot of sense in heaven. And that's where it really counts. That's where it counts. This is what Abraham does. Abram is very jealous for the glory of God. He guards the glory of God. And so whenever you face a Christmas temptation or temptation anytime, God comes through with supreme wonder. You commit yourself to magnifying Jesus Christ in those times and making a greater impression for him and God will come to your aid. Now, I don't know if you're like I am, but I have learned through the years that when it comes to leadership and decision making, if there are two conflicting ideas I really like to search and wait until a win-win solution arises. I do. I, I, I don't like to make losers with my decisions. Uh, in our home, for example, we, we don't just have Toyotas, we also have Nissans. When I serve barbecue at the house, I don't just do pork, I do beef and chicken and sausage. I don't want anyone to be a loser. I really don't. If we have a green vegetable, it's not always Brussels sprouts. It may be green beans. If we order from a fast food restaurant, it's not just McDonald's. I've got to include Burger King. I, I try to go for a win-win. Oh, same, um, same is true with my clothing as well. I, I try to do that as well. I not only have a flat black suit, I've got a pinstripe suit as well. That's black. Win-win. And, and that's true with many other areas of life. And when in leadership I've had conflicting opinions and ideas, I like to pray, like to wait, and search for a win-win solution. Because usually that's what God is waiting for us to do. I like win-win solutions. But I have to tell you, when it comes to this issue, there's no win-win. Someone has got to lose. Jesus Christ must win and everything else be vanquished and set aside. You, you can't ride a fence. You, you, you can't walk a tightrope and stand in the middle. You've got to decide for Christ's sake, for Him and Him alone. There is no fellowship between light and darkness, between Christ and Belial. There's none of that at all. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone must win. There's no win-win solution to this. And, and that's why some are so frustrated. That's why some stay vulnerable and don't have the resources of heaven to deal with temptation because you're trying to please everybody and please everyone. May I suggest to you, first, please Jesus Christ. He gets on your side and he begins to act and he begins to work. And what needs to happen today then is that some of us need to change our minds about these things. And some of us need to turn. Job said in Job 42.6, Now I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the first thing to do. That is to look at your uh, 
uh, waffling and your desire to go win-win with the world in Christ and be abhorred by it. Be, feel, feel about it like you would Sodom and let it shake you, let, let it abhor you and say, I can't stand any more of that. What a horrible thing. I'm abhorred that I haven't made Jesus the lone winner. Well, one chapter over, there's another thing to do. Chapter 15, verse 6, it says, And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That means all of Abraham's sins were eliminated, and the only thing left in his column happened to be the righteous gift of God. The fact that God gave him righteousness because he believed the promise of the Messiah. In other words, you trust the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be sufficient to forgive you of sins. And, and really, you start believing that God is very eager to forgive sin. That God is very eager to claim you as his own. That God is very eager to embrace you and accept you in Jesus Christ. And you stop doubting that. You trust and then you call on his name to save and to forgive. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been walking down an alley and you saw a bully coming or someone that might do you harm and, and you, a stranger or maybe somebody you knew and you decided to go someplace else for safety? I remember one time when I was seven years old, I left school on my way home. I crossed the main boulevard and walked down the sidewalk through a, uh, to a shopping center and there I saw a bully, somebody that gave a lot of kids in the second grade a lot of trouble and I didn't want to mess with him. And so I changed my mind. I was much smaller than he was, believe it or not. And I went into a drugstore and hung out for a while. That's what we're asking you to do today. You see ahead of you, you see ahead of you some trouble coming. And so you change your mind about your direction and you go where you find safety. And that safety is found in Jesus Christ. Repent, change your mind, make a decision in your heart to change directions. And trust the grace of God to forgive and to claim you as God's own. And he'll do it today. You're surrounded by people today who've made that decision. And through the decades here in this place, in services like this, on mornings like this, God has cleansed and claimed and confessed thousands. And you could be the next one if you'll open up your heart and say yes to Jesus Christ. Would you do that today? Others of you have done that, but you need to follow him in baptism. Would you come? Others of you have done that, but you need to become part of a church family. I think you found the place. And if God's leading you, we want you here. God may be calling you to ministry or missionary service. We want to encourage you to come as well. But let's stand together real quickly. I want to pray for you. And we're going to ask God to bless you real good.